Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, An Anchor for the Soul, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Hebrews. Here's Pastor Nick. Uh, And you would make the sacrifice in order to express that you desired to have fellowship with God. You desired to have a relationship with God. Another sacrifice was the sacrifice of dedication. And again, you would take this, you slaughter an animal, you would take the meat from the animal. In the sacrifice of dedication, you would burn it on the altar, but you would burn it until it completely burned up. There would be nothing left. There would be nothing for you to take home. It was all gone. And what that represented, what it symbolized, was your idea, your desire to be yourself, totally devoted to God, to hold nothing back, to say, I'm all in, 100%. And that image of the burnt offering, which symbolized total dedication, that's the image that Paul draws on here in Romans chapter 12, where he says that true worship, the true worship that God desires, is for you to live your life, your whole life, as a living sacrifice, for you to give yourself completely and wholly over to God. Here in Hebrews chapter 13, now the author draws on that same imagery, the imagery of sacrifice. He uses that word sacrifice two times to describe how we're to worship God. He says in verse 15, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to our God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge him. And then in verse 16, he says, And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So one of the big points the writer has been making throughout this letter to the Hebrews is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was in the Jewish religious system. So in other words, everything in Judaism was a picture of Jesus that pointed to him and who he would be and what he would do. And one of the things that we were told in chapters 9 and 10 is that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And so for a Jewish person, this would have been you know, leaving them feeling a bit curious and empty, perhaps, and wondering, well, what do I do next? So, so they would say, look, if Jesus ended the sacrificial system, but sacrifice, that was how we worshiped God. So if Jesus ended the sacrificial system, then now how, how do we worship God if there's no more sacrifice to be made? And here, the author is answering that question. He says, this is the new kind of sacrifice. This is what acceptable worship looks like. This is how you sacrifice now that Jesus has come and been that one time for all sacrifice to end the old system. Now in the new system, this is how you worship. This is how you sacrifice. Verse 15, by offering a sacrifice of praise. In other words, we sing, we praise him, we use our lips, we use our mouths to praise his name. And 16, we don't just stop there. It's not just in word. It's also in deed. Verse 16, we worship God by the way that we live in the world. In Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his followers, his disciples, he told them this. He said, I'm building a new community. And this community I'm building, it's going to be like a city on a hill for all the world to look at and to see. And your good deed will be the light of the world. That's an interesting phrase, the light of the world, because there's another time when we have it recorded that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And yet here he is telling his disciples, your good deeds 
are the light of the world. Brings up a question like, okay, so which one is it? How does this work? Is it he who's the light of the world or is it our good deeds that are the light of the world? Well, the way it works, of course, is kind of like how the sun works with the moon. So Jesus is the source of the light and we, like the moon, reflect that light. We have no light of our own. In fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter one, it actually tells us that. It says that in him, in Jesus was life and that life was the light of men. In other words, we don't have any light of our own. We just reflect his light as it shines on us. And that's the kind of people we're called to be. People who show the world, who reflect to the world who our God is by the way that we live. People who reflect the love, the grace, the kindness that he has shown us. We reflect that to those around us. Sometimes we talk as Christians about the glory of God. Or we'll say that, you know, we want to glorify God. Well, what is that? What does that actually mean? Like, what does that really mean? We know the word glory simply means light. It means a bright, brilliant, magnificent light. That's what glory means. And God's glory is that which is beautiful about him. It's his goodness, his beauty, his majesty. It's that which makes him wonderful and great. And when we talk then about glorifying God, what does that mean? What it means is that we make his glory visible to others to make his glory visible, to make it seen. We lift it up. See, it's already there. It already exists. We're not creating it. It's already there. We're just helping other people to see it. We're helping other people to recognize it, to see those things that are truly amazing and wonderful and good about him. And so along with worshiping God, with our mouths and with our words and song and in word, we also worship God and we respond to the gospel by living in a way that reflects who he is to the world. So again, this chapter is about how do we appropriately worship God as resident aliens and members of a new community. So let's look at the second part. How do we worship God now as resident aliens? Resident aliens. In verse 14, the writer says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Earlier in this book, the writer talked about a city. He said that all the people who came before us who lived in faith, those famous people, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, they all lived seeking a city. But then he said, but that city they sought does not exist here on earth. They were looking for a city, a city which is the hope of the earth, the hope of the whole world, and yet it doesn't exist here on earth. The the great people of faith in the past, they looked forward to this city. They looked for it. What is this city that, that he's talking about? The city is heaven. He's referring to heaven. The city is heaven. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see the Apostle John, he has this great vision. And and as part of that vision, at the end of the vision, he sees this city descending from heaven. He gets a preview of that city, which is to come. And he tells us what it's going to be like. And he says that in that city, God will be there and we will dwell with him forever. And there will be no more sickness, no more illness, no more death. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more poverty, no more racism, no more hatred. All that is broken in this world will be healed. And if we are honest, that city is what all of us are looking for. In all of our endeavors, and in our heart of hearts, that city is what all of us seek after and long for. And the promise that the Bible gives us is that through Jesus, we will get to be part of that city. Right? That city is indeed coming, and through Jesus, we will get to be part of that city. And so the writer says, this is how we live our lives as Christians here on earth, with our eyes fixed on the city which is to come, waiting for it and looking for it and looking to it. But here's what's interesting. So another name that's used for that city, which is a reference to heaven, another name that's used for it is the kingdom of God, the place where God reigns. 
Throughout the Bible, there's this constant contrast given between the city of God and the city of man, between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this earth. And here's what we read in that verse we read earlier. Remember chapter 12, verse 28. Here's what it says. Therefore, since we have received, what? Since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So here's what I want to show you. He says, we have received this kingdom. But then here in chapter 13, verse 14, he says, we haven't received it yet. We're still waiting for it. We're still looking for it. So which one is it? Have we already received it? Or are we still waiting to receive it? And the answer is both. In one way, we have already received it, and yet in another way, we haven't received it yet. We're still waiting for it. How does that work? Well, one of the metaphors that the Bible uses to help us wrap our minds around this concept and how this can be, that we, we on the one hand, have received it, and yet we haven't received it yet. The metaphor that the Bible uses is dawn. Dawn, dawn, that, that first part of the day when, when the sun begins to shine and the sky is no longer dark, it's getting brighter, but the sun has not yet crested the horizon. Day has not yet come. At dawn, it is neither day nor night. It's dawn. It's something in between. It's that time when both light and darkness are both present at the same time, and yet neither of them in full force. But once the dawn has started, the good news is there's no turning back. Once you see that first light of dawn, it's only a matter of time before the sun crests the horizon and the full light of day shines forth and completely drives out all the darkness of night. And the Bible says that's where we're at in history. That's where we stand today. It's dawn. Jesus has come. He died on the cross. He defeated death and sin and evil. And he has given us an unshakable kingdom. He has given us eternal life. He's made us citizens of the new city, the city of God. And yet, here we are, on earth, still dealing with and grappling with issues of sin and evil and death. And here's what the Bible tells us about this. Paul says to the Philippians, he says that we are citizens of heaven, and yet we reside here on earth. There's a specific word that's used there when he talks about us being citizens of heaven and yet residing here on earth. And it's a word which could probably best be translated as resident aliens. A resident alien is a person who's a citizen of one country, but has permanent residence in another country. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. Pastor Nick has written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, Pastor Nick deals directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities. Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there any actual proof that God exists or that the Bible is trustworthy? Pastor Nick addresses these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or has concerns about these topics. And it is a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Christianity, wherever books are sold or visit nickkady.org. To celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as our gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now, back to today's message. For many years when I lived in Hungary, I was a resident alien. I was a citizen of the United States, but I had permanent residence in Hungary. A resident alien is not a tourist. 
A resident alien isn't somebody who lives out of a suitcase. No, that's their home. They're committed. They're an engaged member of that society where they live. And yet, their ultimate home is somewhere else. And this is a picture of who we are as Christians. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we are resident aliens here on the earth. And so we are to be committed. We are to be engaged in our earthly communities for the purpose of glorifying God in the earthly cities we live in, lifting up who he is and letting it be seen, reflecting and showing who he is to other people around us. Our text tells us that that is one of the ways that we are to appropriately worship God as resident aliens as we seek the city that is to come. Jesus told his disciples, he said, I'm building a new community and you are going to be like a city set on a hill for the world to see. Now think about that metaphor and let me say this. You can't be a city all by yourself. In other words, in order to fulfill this calling from God to be a city on a hill, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it. You can't even do it just you and your family or you and your small group of friends. You need others. In order to fulfill that calling from God to be a city on a hill that glorifies him, you need other people. You can't do it just on your own. So we're called to be a community for the sake of the world so that we can fulfill our calling from God in the world so that we can worship him by being a city on a hill whose good deeds point people to our gracious Lord and Savior. But here's the other part of it. You are called to be a community for your own sake as well because you and I desperately need this kind of community in order to be able to stand, in order to be able to consistently keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and trusting in him. You need a certain kind of community. So what is that community that we are called to be for the sake of the world? And what kind of community are we called to be for our own sakes? Because we need it. That brings us to our third point. Remember the big idea, how we are to appropriately worship God as resident aliens. And now we talk about the third part and as members of a new community. The writer tells us in these, in these verses what it looks like, what that community looks like that we're called to be, the kind of community also that we desperately need. Number one, in verse one, he says, it is to be a community of brothers and sisters. You need brothers and sisters. He says in verse one, let brotherly love continue. That word brotherly love, it's the Greek word Philadelphia, just like the city, right? The city of brotherly love. That's what Philadelphia means. In English, we have only one word for love. You love your kids, you love tacos, you, you make love to your spouse, and you love your pets, and you use the same word to describe all of those very diverse emotions and actions and levels of commitment. But in ancient Greek, they had four words. They had four different words to describe that. And because what they said is these different kinds of loves, they aren't just different, different amounts of love that you give to other people and other things. They're actually different ways of loving different people and different things. And so the kind of community that we're called to be is the one characterized by this word Philadelphia. In other words, or phileo, Philadelphia, love for the brethren, love for brothers. This is the kind of community we're called to be, one that's characterized by camaraderie. You need people who know you and you know them. You need to move beyond just being acquaintances to the point of becoming family. And this is one of our goals, by the way, with community groups. We want people to really get to know each other, to move beyond just being acquaintances, because we believe that you will never become that which God desires you to be without brothers and sisters. So I myself, I'm an only child. I don't have any siblings, but I have kids, and I see the dynamic between my kids, especially I have two kids who are very close in age. And so here's what I see as the dynamic between my, my kids as brother and sister. Number one, they fight like crazy. They are annoying each other all the time. They are completely annoyed with each other about 23 hours a day, 
And they even like wake up in their sleep. That's how annoyed they are at each other. And even though they belong to the same family, they're very different. They have different personalities. They have different opinions. And they often clash with each other. They're constantly fighting. But they're fiercely loyal to each other. And they would not be who they are without the other one in their life. And they absolutely love each other, even though they have these conflicts. So my kids, here's the other thing. They know each other so well that they know each other's insecurities. They know each other's fears. They know each other's idiosyncrasies, the things that make them kind of weird. In fact, there are probably things that they know about each other that they don't recognize themselves, in themselves. That's always the case in a family, by the way. I can see things in my wife that she does not see in herself. And I'm sure that she can see things in me that I am blind to about myself. You see, we call those blind spots, and we all have them. See, I know that I have blind spots, but if you were to ask me, hey, Nick, what are your blind spots? I'd be like, how the heck should I know? That's why they're blind spots, because I can't see them. That's by definition. I can't see them. I am blind to them. That's why they're called blind spots. And oftentimes, the, the problem with blind spots is they're, they're actually our greatest weaknesses. Oftentimes, our blind spots are the things which can actually hold us back the most, which can actually lead us into ruin and trouble. And that's a big problem, isn't it? Because if the things which are the most dangerous to us and destructive and potentially harmful in us for ourselves are things which we are completely blind to, that's a huge problem. So how can we deal with our blind spots? The only way to become aware of your blind spots is to allow other people to get to know you well enough that they can see those things about you. But you also need people who are committed to you and who love you enough to show you those blind spots without crushing you in the process. See, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what's wrong with somebody else. Anybody can do that. That's easy. That's easy. But it takes a loving person, a brother or a sister, to come alongside someone and help them see their blind spots in a way that helps them rather than hurts them. You see, in order to grow, you need brothers and sisters. And you're called to be a brother and sister to others. Not a fickle friend, not a fair-weather friend, a committed, loyal brother and sister. That is what the church is to be characterized by. Secondly, a community of people who are not like you. You need a community of people who are not like you. Verse 2 says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, because by doing so, some have entertained angels unaware. Most likely, this is a reference to Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham shows hospitality to somebody, and they turn out to be mysterious visitors who just happen to be angels. But what is, what is interesting here is this word that is translated hospitality is, remember the word for brotherly love is Philadelphia? This is the word philoxenia. Philoxenia, which literally means love for outsiders. Love for outsiders. So whereas we're told in verse 1 that Christian community is to be characterized by love for each other, love for insiders, now we're told that Christian community is also to be characterized by love for outsiders, love for people who are not like you, not part of your group. And, and so what does this mean? What it means is this. You and I need people in our lives who are not like us. You need people in your life who are not like you. You need people in your life who are not your peers, who are not at the same stage of life that you are at. If you are only ever surrounded by people who are just like you, you will never grow. You need people in your life who are at different stages of life. You need people in your life who are at different economic status than you. You need people in your life who are different 
culturally and ethnically than you are. You will never grow unless you encounter people who are not like you. See, here's the thing. If you spend all your time with people who are like you, same age, same stage of life, they have the same political and, and, and religious opinions and everything, then, then what happens is you just become an echo chamber where you just hear the same thing over and over, the same opinions, the same thoughts that you already have. They're just all echoing them back at you. You see, what we need in order to grow, we actually need to encounter people who are different than us. In order for you to be light in the world, you need outsiders. You need outsiders so that you can love them and help them to become insiders because that is what God has done for you in Christ. Thirdly, you need a caring community. Verse 3. You know, we're reminded in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, Bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He says, Let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Fourthly, you need a countercultural community. Look what he says in verse 4. Let marriage be held in high honor among all. Let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, but keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, because he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now here's what I want you to see. These are not just random moral commands. This isn't just a list of moral commands that you have to keep. These are radically different approach to sex and money than what was common in that society. And I'll say this, they're radically different approaches to sex and money than what is found in our society. We live in a society today, too, where marriage is not always held in high regard. We live in a society where people oftentimes love money and use people rather than the other way around, right? The way it should be that we love people and use money. There's an ancient Christian document called The Letter to Diognetus. It's not in the Bible. It's something that came about after, about 100 years after. And in it, though, the writer describes what Christian people are like. And in one part, he says this. Christians are like this. They share their food with all people, but they share their bed only with their spouse. That was a radical thing in those days because people were selfish, right? They would keep their food for themselves but share their bed with others. He says, they are poor, yet they make many rich. They lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. When they are reviled, they bless. When they are insulted, they return the insult with honor. See, what that's describing is that Christians were known for being radically countercultural in their approach to money, sex, and power, and people noticed. It stood out. That's the kind of community we're called to be for the sake of the world, in order to show them who God is and what he's like, and for our own sakes as well. We've got two more, and then I'm done. Verse 7, he says, remember your leaders. So it's to be a community characterized by shepherds and teachers. He says, remember your leaders. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he says, don't be led away by bad teaching, but your hearts need to be fed with grace. See, what that means is that we need a community which is characterized by good teaching, where the gospel is championed, where the Bible is taught, where bad doctrine is refuted. That's very important to this kind of community. And lastly, we need a community of people to worship with, and to pray for. See, that's the thing. So we, we talk about worshiping in word and deed in verses 15 and 16. But in verse 18, interestingly, the writer says this, please pray for me. Please pray for us. Here's the thing I want you to know, that the church is to be that kind of community. Not only a place where you come to be prayed for, but a place where you come to pray for others. In other words, not only to receive, but also to minister to others with the gifts that God has given you. I'll finish today by saying this, and we'll read that last section as our benediction. The final closing for today is this question. This community that's described here is beautiful, but where can we actually get the power to live like this? Where can we get the power to live this kind of life? Where can we get the power to become this kind of community? The answer is actually given in two places in this text. 
verse 12 and verse 5. In verse 12, we're said, because Jesus suffered outside the gates, because he bore shame and reproach and scorn for you. In other words, Jesus became an outcast so that you could be accepted. That's the message of the gospel. Jesus lost his community as he bore our sins on the cross, as he was forsaken by his father. You see, that was the intense spiritual pain and suffering of the cross. It was more than just the physical pain. It was this intense spiritual pain as our sins were placed on him and he lost his connection with the father. He lost his community for our sakes so that we could be brought in to this new community, so we could become citizens of this new city. That's the message of the gospel. That's the motivation. And in verse 5, he says that Jesus promised he will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, it is only by his power in our lives that he gives us. That is the only way that we can live out this vision for community that glorifies him and which we ourselves desperately need in order to stand strong and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this vision of community. Thank you, Lord, that you lost your community so that we could gain one. Lord, you lost heaven so that we could gain it. And thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you that you have made us new people in you. And Lord, I pray that we would live out as new people this new kind of community. Lord, we know that we are called to it and we know that we ourselves desperately need it. So Lord, we pray that you would do it in our lives and help us by your power because you are with us to live it out for your glory and for the sake of others. We pray in Jesus' name. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.